Well, good morning, LCM! We're going to have an unusual message today. The title will be Defeating Disparity, Creating Equals. We've been asked to mix a testimony of our recent travels with a message, and so we're going to do that. I wanted to begin in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to be in chapter 9, and I'm going to start in verse 6. And those of you that love your computers and your phones, love them a little less this morning and pick up your physical Bible. If you are nervous about notes, I will give you uh, my notes. I want you to actually interact with your Bible. 2 Corinthians 9 in verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply And increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Usually when you hear this passage quoted, you can brace. The offering plate is not far behind it. The reason that I'm quoting it now is I want you to understand that this season of sacrificial generosity that you guys have sowed into the One Association have made it possible for us to minister in seven or eight nations. And some of them, we didn't plan to. We didn't know we were going. In the midst of flight delays, cancellations, reschedulings, and changed itineraries, the only thing that we had to be concerned with was what God's will was in the very next moment. For the first time in 30 years, I was not concerned with how we would pay for it. Now... Those financial pressures also form us. And we don't seek to be alleviated from them. Having said that, it surely was nice to worry about only the next word being the word that God gave me in the moment. And I wanted to tell you that it is causing thankfulness for your generosity all over the world. There are people in other churches whom you have not met that their lives have been affected by what you did. We will see them in the age to come. Some of you will get to see them in this age too. I would like to look at Isaiah 8 
18. There. Oh, man. For the first time in many years, I can both read my Bible and I can see you. What a blessing that is. In Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 18, Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. I want to tell you that what we are building as a family is a sign to the world that the God of Israel is shedding abroad his gifts and multiplying his work on earth through discipleship. Rather than me give you testimonies of what happened on the trip, I thought my signs and symbols could give you testimonies. Is that all right with you? If I'm completely honest, my daughter preached better than I did overseas. If I'm completely honest, my wife ministered more effectively and with greater intensity than I did overseas. So I'd like to just turn this portion of our message over to them and tell you this morning we're not going to focus on trained speaking. We're not going to focus on wise and persuasive words. I haven't used my computer in over six weeks, and it has been glorious. I am returning to the ancient paths. I'm rediscovering the beauty of a physical Bible in my hands, and I want you to do it with me. Amen. All right, girls. This meeting is yours. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to start with talking about Indonesia. Um, This is our first stop, and uh, if you'll put Psalm 107.37. I would love to hear your Bibles turning. Yeah. Let's see it. This is the most beautiful thing. (laughs) They sowed fields and planted vineyards that yielded a fruitful harvest. Indonesia is a fruitful harvest. Um, I was overwhelmed by the moment that we got there. Um, All of their disciples came into their home, and uh, immediately the house was filled with God's people. Uh, The Vincents are doing amazing. Their church is a precious, precious group of believers. Uh, They're very hungry for the word, which is awesome. They're in excellent students, too. They wrote down every single scripture to any question that was answered, and then they tallied them at the end of our trip, which was in close to the thousands. It was crazy. Um, And I love to see how the Vincents and the Goosemans and the elder uh, family that's, uh, y'all got to see a picture of Elder Gerwin and Lena and their family, how they work in unity. It's beautiful. Uh, They absolutely, absolutely resemble Elsian in their teaching about the one life. They pour into each other, and then they're pouring out to their families every chance they get, and they're affecting that city, and they're affecting that nation. Well, this is fun. I get to look at all of y'all. Nobody's hiding from me, so y'all better be paying attention. Okay. This is a family meeting. <laughs> the first thing that I noticed when we went to Indonesia, 
in the car picking us up was Mora, um, the woman that we've been praying for that was on our screen often. Uh, she's healed and healthy. She was smiling and joyful and was giving me words. And I just remember like tearing up like this woman that we've prayed for around the world is healthy. Um, and it's just a testimony that no witch doctor is more powerful than God. Um, another thing, uh, I had the pleasure of sitting on top of the rooftop where uh, they're staying with some of the disciple girls that are living there. Um, Uli and uh, Mora and another one, and they were sharing their testimony. And um, it was just about how they fell in love with the Lord as much as they knew how before they met the Vincents. But it's during COVID. And uh, one of the girls was just describing that she was looking for a church, but nothing was open except holy grounds. And uh, it just really touched me because I thought, Lord, you mean being obedient, even when it doesn't make sense, affects lives? It, I mean, four of these girls' lives were touched because the Vincents were open and uh, were bold against the COVID mandate. And uh, so I want to encourage you, church, as I'm listening to this, and it dealt with my heart, what things do you need to be obedient about? Because it may affect people's lives. And, uh, Can you give us the slide, the first one? The Whoa. next one for me, sorry. So this is um, their disciples, and they went everywhere. So in the morning at 7 a.m. when they start Bible study, they're all there. And all of them uh, are hungry for the word. It, they're just, it's so precious how they stayed with us basically from 7 a.m. till 2 a.m. They wanted more of anything that the Lord would give them. Yeah. Um, go to the next one for me. This here is us praying over Jonathan. We call him Jeho. Jeho. Uh, this is <laughs> in the church. Jonathan. Yes. Uh, where he was dedicated to the Lord. Um, one of the precious things is the church because they have so many believers that are young. Uh, they've done the coffee shops. They've done syrup making so that they can all be employed and stay in Jocha because a lot of them are students and we're supposed to go back home. And the church has found ways to help support them, but they all live together so that they can all learn and how precious it was. Amen. When I was thinking of what my mom was sharing, I couldn't help but think of Ephesians 4.16. You can turn there. <laughs> I have it too. I'm going to read it from my Bible. What? Um, Ephesians 4.16. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The church took care of each other. Um, if there was a need, like they couldn't stay in Joja, the church would fill it in. They all wanted to stay together in unity, and that just really encouraged me. Uh, one of the things that they started in service was interceding and praying uh, for the churches of the One Association, and specifically India, Annan their heart to go after it, and they start their service by interceding for our churches. Um, so it really blessed me. If you put the picture back up, I'm sorry. The one about Joho, that's there af right afterwards. They dedicated and started praying for them. But um, what was so precious to me was that 
uh, they do a prayer beforehand, like a, a, a time of prayer, and every single person showed up. Yeah. And so they're not required to, but every single person was there and they're at every service to try and pray and intercede, which was beautiful. By the way, Anna and Israel will be visiting yeah. Indonesia in September. And the church in Indonesia is financing it. Yeah. And then the one association is going to help disciples from Indonesia go minister in India. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, one of my close friends, Ren, love her. Um, we were having a Bible study one of the early mornings, which, by the way, was just for the house disciples, but the whole church came anyway. Um, <laughs> hungry for the word. Um, my mom had shared a testimony about being baptized and was just faithful to be vulnerable. And uh, one of the girl disciples, Ren, basically stood up and said, I want that. I want to be baptized. And uh, so the next night, we held a baptism at the coffee shop. People were coming in, getting coffee, watching it. In front of everyone, Ren got baptized. To put that into perspective, Ren is a leader yeah. there. Yeah. But she was unconcerned with her image as a leader. She wanted to demonstrate obedience that the Lord had put on her heart. We love you, Ren. And by the way, church, when you refer to Ren, the proper way to do it is the mighty, mighty Ren. Ren. <laughs> so the next thing that we were really just blessed and overwhelmed to be able to do was to pray for Gwen's eyesight. Y'all yeah. have seen the, you can see this picture here. Um, I felt like, you know, we were praying for it, but then this evening, especially I could see on my husband that, that anointing, that mm. spirit come over him from the Lord of this has to be done. This needs to happen. And so we started praying and you know how you can feel in the spirit, something's moving, changing, doing it was, it was, it was happening. And of course the enemy the next day came in, she's like, my eyes are hurting me. And we're like, we were encouraged. It was like, that means there's something happening. This is going to happen. But at first she was a little bit nervous, but then we kept getting testimonies days later that things were, she was starting to see better, that things were starting to happen. And so this is something as our body, we have to continually pray for. This little girl needs to be healed totally. So. I wanted to comment on that for just a minute. It's good that we began a thing. But we have to see that one through to completion. Yeah. Puck Gerwin tricked me into paying for an eye exam and glasses. To my, the best of my memory, at no point in my adult life has anyone ever paid a medical expense for me. And a man in Indonesia, I didn't know that his daughter had vision problems at the time, saw me struggling to read my Bible and he arranged an appointment without explaining it to me. Yeah. So I set off on a motorcycle with him just to go see some things he wanted to show me and ended up at an optometrist's office and an Indonesian purchased my glasses and for the first time in many years I can both read my Bible and see you. I asked him why. And he said, Eric, eyesight has always been very important to me. Eye health is close to my heart, but he didn't explain it. And then I met his daughter. Yeah. We will see that victory happen. Yes. Amen. Amen. 
No, it was just encouraging because that whole trip was when things started to push back, we would push back harder. And uh, it was a beautiful thing to see. I would spend a lot of time with the children and uh, they would be playing on the swing sets and the Quran would go off. And it's really loud where they live because they have a Quran, uh, not Quran, you know, <laughs> mosque there. And um, the kids in response would start to scream, soldiers, the song. We are we soldiers. Are soldiers. <laughs> I mean, they literally Shama would swings. pretend he has a sword and be like, soldiers. <laughs> and I kind of just laughed and I was like, Lily, why do y'all, why do y'all do this? And she said, because we are louder than the Quran. And that just overwhelmingly encouraged me because even the children are learning that that's demonic and we are louder than that. So um, I think we have two pictures just to show the girls um, the sweetness of all of them and how much they love uh, Teresa. And that's Lena in the back. We, uh, Farrah was in. But they have such a beautiful little group of women that yeah. are just growing up to be righteous, godly women. It's the next one. And there, I just wanted to show you that's right there to the right is Gerwin and Lena. Yeah. And then that's Zoe. And then that is Uli that's in their leadership team. And it goes all the way around. And, of course, you can see Gary and Farah and Brent and Teresa. But that's their leadership team there. So, okay. I'm not sure what the girls are sharing. We uh, did not plan this because I wanted it to simply be organic. But I do want to testify before the whole world. Brent and Teresa um, are clothed in a level of humility and power for the Lord that I have rarely seen. Uh, this is the emergence of an apostolic work in Indonesia. And we had the most extraordinary time with them that I have ever had oh, with for them. Sure. And, um, well, church, we couldn't be any more proud of what they're yeah. doing. Brent and Teresa and Geary and Farah and Pat Gerwin and Lena are a threefold cord and they have replicated the way of life that we see here without deviation. Yeah. And God is honoring it he in is. every way. And we should honor people like them. Yes. Uh, the last picture for me. This was such a sweet opportunity. Um, Geary has um, given absolutely everything he has to the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, anything that he ever received, he always shared with all the disciples. Everything they have, they, they share with their home, their children's church. They yeah. share all of their snacks with their kids for everyone. Y'all were able to, the one association, through your blessings, was able to actually buy him a moped. It's the first one he's ever had on his own. And we, it was such a huge blessing because his whole family rides on the moped. In Indonesia, kids. that is a vehicle that transports <laughs> dad, mom, and two children. Yes. So I just wanted y'all to see it. <laughs> okay, so we're going to move on to Italy. So uh, Isaiah 35, 1 through 2, please. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will greatly rejoice and shout for joy. 
A trip to Italy to see the Massey family was so encouraging. Um, they had found an Assemblies of God church that they'd become a part of and were sharing the gospel with them. Um, they had family meals. Danielle cooked for them, had them over to their home. She cooked them spaghetti in an <laughs> Italian country. <laughs> Somebody say that's brave. <laughs> brave. And uh, the moment that we got there, they're like, we're going to church. We have Sunday night service. You're speaking, Pastor Eric. And it was like, wow, okay, we're doing this. And uh, so exciting. But the, the people were precious. They were, had been an older congregation hoping for new life. And uh, if you go to the picture, uh, this right here. This young lady right here was interpreting. She literally had had a baby two days prior. But she was the only one that, that, spoke, that spoke English. They all spoke Italian. But when Eric was sharing in his loud, pronounced, amazing voice, Repent! <laughs> the townspeople outside could hear and started gathering in, in crowds. Through the and windows. it was just, it was so incredible to see these people worship and cry and be so touched and so moved. It was so beautiful. One of the first things that I noticed being in Italy was when the Masseys walked in with all their boys, mm -hmm. Danielle with her baby Mariah, all of the people began to smile and touch their family. Um, the women would touch Mariah, they would touch uh, Danielle, and they just had this love for them that I could tell that the Masseys had cultivated there. Um, Danielle was a testimony to where she spoke Italian wherever she went. Bold. She was bold. She was going after it. And their baby Mariah was probably the biggest ministry opportunity. <laughs> so everyone loved the baby. Um, but I just thought that was beautiful. I loved how the Masseys met every neighbor. It's yes. a small, it's a small little city and it's very older community, but they'd met every neighbor. They had poured out everywhere they went. Anytime they went into a, a grocery store, they were just ministering the gospel. We were really, really proud to see how the Lord had done such an amazing work in them yeah. being there for two and a half, three months. Yeah, so. and the coolest thing is, even though the entire church spoke Italian, but Anna, um, it felt like our body, and it uh -huh. felt like our church. And it puts it in perspective that different languages, different names, but we're one body. So... We were there in Rio Nero with them for two days, and then we traveled to Bari, the city of Bari, which is on the opposite, is the eastern side, south of Italy, where we were going to meet the Albanian family. So I have Psalm 88, if you can put that up for me. It's you transplanted a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and you planted it. When we traveled to Bari, I honestly wasn't quite sure what to expect. Um, I had never met the Albanian family before. The Masseys had connections with them, and they, you know, um, were just giving great testimonies about their family. But you know how when you meet someone, and instantly you know in the spirit you're like-minded? That was this family. They were precious. They had four boys uh, that ranged from 19, 17, 9, and 5. So they had two and two, different gap in between. But um, really, really precious um, they had a really a heart for their people and what Jesus could do. Very much positive attitude. Uh, they live in an entire country that's Muslim. They were bold and courageous when they talk about in their city center. They go and share the gospel knowing that they may be persecuted and they don't care. They're very bold about it. Um, one of the things that uh, was just really sweet was that 
um, they, their family, uh, it was is kind of alone in their city in their town, and immediately we started to get to pour into them about ministry flowing from the home, you know, and how it works, and then also trying to find someone alongside of you immediately. Our LCM, you know, teachings just start to flow out of both of us. And before we know it, we're meeting every day, going over the words, sharing words together, encouraging each other, trying to strengthen this family. And it was just really precious to see how the Lord was moving. Uh, I was really blessed getting to meet this family because I didn't hear the extensive report from them. Mr. Nick was just like, you'll love them. I was like, okay, what are they like? And he's like, you're just going to see. I was like, okay. <laughs> but meeting them, uh, I got really close with Ms. Noku. Uh, she shared her testimony with me. Being 10 years old, uh, she grew up in a very Islamic family, very traditional, uh, was walking on the street with her friend and heard rumors of an underground church being held at a daycare. And so she lied to her mom and went to the meeting and fell in love with the Lord yeah. and started going to those meetings every chance she could. And uh, her mom started to notice that she was lying but loved the change that had happened yeah. in her daughter and just didn't say anything. And uh, she met her husband through, he was one of the guys giving a word, one of the meetings. And uh, it's precious because they are a church, especially in the city where they are, where uh, they do sacrifices and some really demonic things happen there. But they are so bold in every situation to be preaching the gospel. Uh, even their children, <laughs> they have their haircuts have crosses on them because in every little statement they want to show uh, the Lord. Yeah. Okay, so then we're going to go on to Romania. Um, I will probably cry a little bit with that one. It's okay. That's why y'all so, are here, so you can cry and I don't have to. Okay. He's a softie. The glasses make him seem more <laughs> handsome, but we all know you're teddy bear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So let's turn to Acts 16.9. <laughs> Calling them out. <laughs> oh, goodness. So during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, and concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So I have a great love and affection for the Romanian people because we've spent a lot of time there. Yeah. Uh, Indonesia was absolutely encouraging, absolutely uh, precious to see the Vincents thriving and doing what they were doing. In Italy, to see the Massey family was so, you know, just like, oh, yes, you know, and we're so excited. And then to meet a new family and to be able to pour into them and encourage them was incredible. But when we were at the end of our trip in Indonesia, uh, Nick Massey had a dream, and he had a dream of someone standing up on a chair and sharing, saying, the door to Romania is opened, yeah. and he didn't know what that meant, so he contacted Eric, knowing that we were going to see them in like two days. Well, literally that morning, I woke up and had a message from Anka Barbu. She's like, hey, could we talk? We'd really love to do a video chat, and at the time, we were fixing to wake up the next morning and traveling, which would be about 48 hours before we got to Italy. And so we're like, yes, can we meet? We're leaving you know, on Saturday. Can we talk on Tuesday? And then immediately when we were in Italy, we 
you know, did video chat, and you all know how awkward that can be sometimes because you're trying to read people and understand what's going on. Through a screen. <laughs> and their hunger for what do we do? Yeah. Once again, we have striven to be a part of a church and part of a ministry, and we're in worship, we're doing all these things, and things are coming apart again. The and video chat was not just with Niku and Anka. Yeah. It was with 10 couples that are responsible for 350 Christians in a church. And so we're staring at a very few people on the video uh, that fit in the screen, but there were many, many behind them. Yeah. So, um, of course, we're praying. We submit it to our team. We start praying to figure out what we're going to do. And I just love how Jesus will show you in a dream what you're supposed to go and do next. Um, people in Romania, especially Cluj, were extremely hungry for the truth and direction from the Lord. Um, arriving with the Massey family, which was incredible. That's a testimony we'll share. Uh, we got to show firsthand how you work in teams. Immediately when we're sharing, we're all together. And um, uh, my special heart in ministry is I got to reflect my husband like a moon. And my, my husband shone like the sun. And you'd be surprised at how we all know that. It's very common to us. And I must have shared that, shared the word, and shared that example maybe 30 times. And, how, and how the Lord just moved upon that. Um, I saw more how this trip, how the enemy has been desperately trying to dissolve the church of the living God there. Um, and how Jesus has completely prevailed. And, um, sorry, and adding families and even more connections. Uh, and things that I thought were lost, that you just kind of submit before the Lord like, it's a burnt offering, Lord. All those times, all those months, all those years, all those connections, it's just burnt offering before you. And seeing it revive itself again and have life was just incredible. Um, I think that the enemy has definitely been working overtime to isolate them. And I know now more than ever, having been on this trip, that our focus in the Aswan region and the prophecy that was given with us standing in the Black Sea they are definitely the key to the Middle East. Um, I was tasked to share this part of the testimony. Uh, so we were in Bari, uh, praying about Romania. We know we're going to go. Uh, Nick, having the dream, was just really praying about wanting to go too. But they were in Italy for a citizenship. And uh, so he just was like, I'm going to just call our agent. And uh, the guy that they had been working with, the agent, he had grown very close with. Um, he had never been to church before, before going with Mr. Nick to translate for a service. So he's in church for the first time, and Mr. Nick is, you know, preaching through him, and he's just like, okay, in this, you know. Uh, so they had kind of had a friendship, and Mr. Nick just called and was just like, I really feel like we should go to Romania. And that guy said, you think it's an emergency? He's like, yes. He's like, then go. I'll mark it off. I, I will take care of everything. You just go to Romania. And even the small things, it prepared a way for us to go as a team. Even the children, together, we all as a family <laughs> got to go to Romania. Um, the overall testimony of Romania is that they were tired of a one leader kind of stand. They wanted a team. And um, seeing, 
as we get there as a team and pouring this into them, they were hungry to want to do that. When we were there, people made commitments to start working in a team. And we were reading the oaths to them, my dad and Mr. Nick, and they just started to cry because this is what they want and are hungry for. Um, it was beautiful getting to go older because I went I, as a young girl. I'm very close with Miss Anka. She would sneak me ice cream when my mom wasn't looking. Mm -hmm. You know, so we had a close relationship. Not just based off of ice cream, but it was there. And uh, I grew up being very close with her, so much that her little girl's name, Abby. And uh, I got to meet her for the first time. And getting to see this church and this family that we poured so much into that I grew up going to get set free from small things like that and work in unity as a body in Romania, it honestly was life-changing for me. Um, so we've kind of skipped, skipped our pictures, and I'm sorry. So if you want to put them up really quickly, um, there's Anka and Niku, us having dinner together and them pouring out their heart to us on the next one. This is the team of three that is very much, um, they immediately were like, we need to do this together. We need to go this through the step four uh, steps together. One of the testimonies that... Uh I just think we are to share is after teaching on the order of a home, the way that a ministry should operate, the ministry being the pillar and foundation of truth. First uh, Timothy three, Titus one. There were a couple families that one in particular that he stood and said, I want you to understand something. I've got a long ways to go before my home looks like you are describing. But I will do whatever it takes for that to happen. Amen. That's what leadership looks like. Yeah. No. Uh, it was a, just such a precious time. They asked um, Eric to speak to the youth right at the end. It was one of the last meetings. And uh, he had spoken to some of the leaderships the morning before. And Abby in the car said, hey, Dad, um, I need to talk to you about something. And Eric's sitting there going, yeah, I'm trying to think of what I'm going to teach the youth. You know, and he's like kind of racking. He's like, I don't have anything right now. I, I mean, we've been teaching constantly. She's like, hey, Dad. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And he's, she's like, I need to be obedient. I need to speak at that message. And um, I was so excited and nervous for her all at the same time. I thought, okay. The truth comes and, out. Uh, she said, uh, she said, I need to give my testimony. Yeah. You know, this needs to happen. So our daughter, Eric introduced her, and she stood up before probably 35 people that were the age of 15 to like 30, just their youth, <laughs> and shared what the Lord had done for her. And when I say that to see the Spirit just move through your daughter, your child, you know, that she's no longer a child, she's a woman, but it's still to see that was amazing. And at the end of the service, nobody wanted to leave. And I believe four people got born again and two got spirit-filled because of it. And it was powerful. It was moving. To watch my baby girl read 1 Kings 18 <laughs> and look at people and say, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, go serve him. But if the Lord is God, 
then choose right now. And then turn to a young man and say, I'm talking to you. You're standing in the middle, and God says you must choose. And see him get filled with the Holy Ghost was pretty special. Amen. Uh, it was just one of those moments um, for a few days that you felt like everywhere we went, God was moving. God was opening up hearts, opening up paths, doing things that had been hidden, those ancient paths. The dust was just being swept away, and they were being shown. And it was just so encouraging and so um, just in my spirit, like, I, I can't believe it, Lord. I'm faithless sometimes because I think, oh, well, it's just not going to happen. And the Lord's like, don't, don't say that. Don't think that. Be full of hope. Be full of faith about what I can do. It just is on his schedule, not mine. Um, even to the point, I had a conversation with um, the Bible director. There's a huge uh, school there, Bible school. And him and his wife have been doing it for almost 30 years. And I got to meet her for the first time. And I was telling with her, sharing with her she was our trip. And she said, now, wait a minute. Let me, let me ask this question again. She goes, you said there was a family that was in Italy trying to get citizenship because um, they don't know why. And you got to meet an Albanian pastor there. And I was like, I know it seems kind of crazy, but all that takes place. She goes, no. We just sent a family from our Bible school that are Romanians that had a heart to have citizenship in Italy because they want to minister there to the gypsies and to the Albanians. And I was like, and, and in the city we were in. In Bari. the city of Bari. And so it was just like the Lord's going, see, just right there. You be faithful. Even though you don't see it, the Lord's always moving. He's always doing it. He's always doing it. So I want to be very clear about a few things. In Indonesia, Brent and Teresa and their team, they're doing extraordinary. Yes. In Italy, the Masses, a husband and wife perfectly reflecting Jesus and reflecting each other. Yes. And even the order that their children displayed were a witness to the world around everywhere. them. Everywhere, yeah. In Romania, everywhere that we went, our team, even though we're from separate churches, our team displayed what they needed. We taught from the time we got up till the time that we went to sleep uh, every day. And we never knew what the topic was going to be about. But the topics always came back to the fundamentals that we have learned in this house. Yes. It's almost as if God has prepared us for what the nations need. need. Amen. Amen. Uh, I do want to tell you, girls, you uh, thank you so much. I do want to tell you that... Uh, there are some things I want to share with you in our remaining time that I think are for this body. But if you would like to hear another recap and an excellent teaching summarizing the general theme that we shared, please go to the Arising Church's website or YouTube page and download the message called Miracle Family. It is Nick and Danielle preaching. It's excellent. It is better than I could do, so I'm not going to attempt to reproduce it. But I think you would be benefited by it. Amen? All right, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. We're 39 minutes into the message. Are y'all done? Again, our topic 
This morning is defeating disparity, creating equals. If you don't know what disparity is, it's when there is an enormous difference between two things. When one is tall and the other is short, or one is fat and the other is thin, or one is a smooth-faced Greek and the other is a bearded barbarian. Disparity. You already know what equals are. So let's, with that in mind, engage with Matthew 28 and start in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Engage with that for just a second. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Some is not one. If it were one, it would say, Thomas doubted. I'm not going to walk you through the chronology because I don't intend to teach today. I want to share my heart with you today. But to put this into perspective, the women have already met Jesus in the garden. You can examine the events of John 20 or the last chapters of Luke and, and you can figure it out. Jesus has already met with people in an upper room. Jesus has already encountered Thomas and had Thomas touch the holes in his hands and the side and the wounds in his side. They are staring at resurrected Jesus, glorified Jesus. It's not their first time. And they worshipped him, but also doubted. Is that shocking to you? Not as shocking as what comes next. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. If you were standing in the group of 11, and you know very well that while you're staring at resurrected Jesus and you're worshiping him because he deserves to be worshiped and you have an idea of how great he is, but you are also doubting in the very same moment. And he looked at you and said, I have all authority and I am commissioning you. Would you turn to look to see who he was talking to? How big is the disparity between Jesus and those men? I would say it's pretty big. And yet the first thing that Jesus does in the scenario is to close that disparity by giving of what the Father has given him and putting it in their hands. I just got to tell you, I'm a skeptic. The word of God is changing my wicked heart, changing the indifference and skepticism that I have towards people. You know, it feels like just being a realist. If this person in the last nine encounters has spit in your face, then it is reasonable to expect that in the next encounter, you probably need to bring a handkerchief. 
except that reasons out what God would do with them. And it magnifies a disparity between you and them, and it lifts you above them. It causes you to believe that you have it right, and they do not have it right. I want you to engage with the Savior of the world in this thought for a minute. He entrusted all that would ever happen on the earth. He entrusted the kingdom of God on earth to 11 men who worshipped him, but were also doubting him in that moment. I'm not suggesting that you have faith in men, but I am suggesting that your faith in God's ability to work in men, like mine, may need to grow. How many times have you thought it was the end of a relationship? How many times have you thought, this is the death nail, it's done? And the resurrection power of God brought it back to life. Maybe, maybe we could look at John 15. Is that all right? Okay. Still trying to figure out how to hold a microphone and read my Bible. But the good news is, thanks to Pac Gerwin, I can read it whether it's here or here or in my hand. It just feels weird to not have a Bible in my hand. In John 15, keeping in mind that what I'm actually talking to you about is the way that Jesus expected his disciples to become his equal, affected his administration of the kingdom. John 15, beginning in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. I want you to engage with that phrase for just a second. What does it mean to remain in Jesus' love? Well, if you're a Westerner and you hear that, it's kind of like remain in my good graces. Remain in my emotional disposition. Love is defined more like sacrificial acts of faith. Love is a commitment. And he's telling them to remain in his love, not remain in his emotional state. I want you to hear how specific he is about it. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. Before we move on to this, there's nothing ambiguous about this. To remain in Jesus' love doesn't mean that he has warm, fuzzy, emotional feelings about you. It literally means that you are obedient to the things that he has said in the same way that he has been obedient to his Father. That is what it means to remain in his love. Now, you can put John 3.16 at every baseball game and misunderstand it. You can cling to the idea that God just loves me so much that you... Want to hold hands with him and skip on the beach. But the way the Bible defines remaining in his love is the kind of obedience that he displayed with his father, you displayed to him. That's what it means to be in his love. Now, that's not new to you. At least not most of you. You've heard it. It'd be easy to go, okay, I got where you're going, and then tune out. Look what he says next, though. I have told you this 
so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The very act that he is describing and the things that he is teaching will create in them joy and bring it to its telos, its completion. What is the secret to a joyful life? Obedience. So, wow, I've got some joy now. Good, complete it. By completing your obedience. But what is the specific area of obedience he's talking about? My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. We talk often about the great sacrifice of Jesus, but we're missing something. The context is that they would display the same level of sacrifice for each other that Jesus displayed for them. We love to lift up the sacrifice of Jesus, and there is none like it, except that in our daily activities specifically towards our brothers, we're supposed to do exactly the same thing. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Before we read verse 16, I want you to understand that Jesus did not just die on the cross. He carried the sacrificial daily attitude of exalting his brother's needs and development beyond his own needs every single day. In fact, it's wearisome to him at times. Are you guys still so dull of understanding and slow to believe, he said sometimes. He, he would be teaching something amazing, and they would still be arguing. These are the men that he entrusted the kingdom of heaven on earth to. So much so that after being raised from the dead, standing, staring at the glorified Jesus, they're still doubting, and he entrusted the future of his work on earth to them. Make you think about how you think about your brothers on your left and right, won't it? About the little scorecard that we give each other. Like when you walk into a room, this one knows the word, this one's obedient, this one's not. Huh. It's almost like Jesus knew from the moment that he picked them what their design from his father was. And although there was an enormous disparity between him and them, he knew what they would become. That he credited them with equality in his actions towards them and eliminated the disparity through faith. What does it look like to know what a man is called to do before he does? 
What does it look like to know God's design in somebody's life and despite all of the data that you see around him, know what God is going to do? Well, that's honor is what that is. You're not just honoring him. You're honoring the God who gave him the calling. Honoring the design of the creator in the man. You're honoring God through your faith that he himself will eliminate the disparity if you act in faith to treat him as an equal. The church world needs this. You need this. Look at the next verse. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. Now, for just a minute, we've kind of gotten off track. Jesus Christ sees in them their potential. He sees in them the design of his father. He has appointed them and he has called them and he is telling them, I chose you and you will do this. But that's not the point of John 15. The point was that they were to show this kind of love to one another. Constant reminder that they are chosen. Constant reminder that they will bear fruit, fruit that lasts. Constant honoring of God's design in each other despite the disparity that you see. Now, if you think deeply about this, this ought to be encouraging. It ought to be encouraging because you wake up and you know the disparity between the you that is standing there and the one that God designed to take the kingdom to the world. It's almost like you need brothers around you to remind you. The guy staring at you in the mirror is not who you are. You are the image and design of God. And he put his spirit in you and he chose you because he had a calling on you before you were born. And you will reach that calling. See, if we emphasize the disparity, it is like Nabal speaking to Nabal. If you emphasize what a man must become, what he is becoming, what the Lord said he shall become, you honor his God who designed it and can transform it to happen. If I were standing there looking at 11, well, you know me. The very least that would happen would be a verbal rebuke. I would hope Peter would have already gotten rid of that sword he used a few days earlier because I'd be tempted to backhand him. And Jesus didn't. He had more faith in what his father could do in a man than what he saw presently in the man. Come on, church. We so desperately need this kind of brotherhood. We need this culture of honor. Now, you know very well that when Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It is a reminder that a rabbi only picks a student who has the ability to become what he is. 
great disparity is cured by crediting someone with equality. When I met Brent Vincent, I thought he was offensive. I loved him. I thought he had bold faith, and I found him difficult. But in recognizing what God had called him to, I've seen Brent Vincent become somebody that I greatly look up to. What blessings are we eliminating from our life by focusing on a disparity? A disparity that we believe God can cure, but you're not sure if he will. Aren't you participating in faithlessness towards God and men when you think like that? Let's just be honest. I'll take our nine gifted men on any given week. On any given week. The strongest among us, whoever you think that is, has illustrated with perfect clarity the disparity between the men they're supposed to be and the men that they are. But the other eight men will not allow them to stay there. See, that is the kind of love that the Lord is calling us to. That is what it means to look at disparity and cure it through granting someone equality. One of the biggest parts of our ministry for many, many years has been looking at a man like Wade Sutherland on a fishing trip and seeing that God has designed him to be a pastor of the purest order. At first, I didn't know why, no matter where I moved in the country or what was happening, Wade and Christy would show up every six months. But I figured it out. Deep is calling to deep. I know what the man is to become, and it doesn't matter what his church life or anything else looks like in this moment. And you cure the disparity by crediting with equality. Know what it is like to look at the Piro household and on day one say it doesn't matter what disparities you see, you are standing here as an absolute equal that will outshine the rest of us until it becomes reality and it has. We could do this with Buddy, could do this with Mike, could do this with every person that our ministries raised up we have to develop a culture that ignores the negative feedback you see in a person in front of you and instead calls out to them about what God has called them to be let's look at Hebrews 11 we're an hour in and I don't know. I'm back home, so I, let's just be honest. It wouldn't be me if I cared very much about how long the message was. <laughs> Hebrews 11. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Sound booth, while I'm speaking about that, is it possible that you can find that in the Amplified? I want you to grab hold of what this means. Jesus is looking at 11. 
The 11 are fraught with problems. The 11 are worshiping him, but are also deficient enough to still be doubting. But the Son of God looking at them has the title deed to what they will become. He knew it before they knew it. He knew it in the moment that he first called their names. He knew it when they were cutting off ears and asking to call down fire from heaven on people. He knew it when they were arguing. He knew it when they were in their lowest moments. And he didn't let go of it. He had faith for them. And he proved it. By entrusting to them the future of the church on earth. Now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of the things we hope for. I knew the moment that I met Carlos that in front of this, at the time slightly contentious, (laughs) even a little bit esoteric and some of the things that he was interested in. I knew that there was a pastor standing there with a burning love for the word of God and that the reason that he was pushing a little bit is because he was dying to meet somebody that would meet the challenge. Church, we're going to have to believe that God will work in our brothers. We're going to have to believe it to the extent that we look And we call into existence what God says is there. And you refuse to acknowledge the minor temporary setbacks that are before you. If we don't do this, how will you ever disciple? How will you walk in brotherhood? How will you avoid simply being a man who keeps a record of wrongs? You know where you first learned to do this? In marriage. Last night, she was amazing. But this morning, my clothes are not set out. This is not right. And her value is going down in your eyes because you are a carnal toad. Her value was set by God when he gave the life of his son for her. Her value was set by God the moment that he designed a calling that she's the other half of. Her value was set by God in the way that he created and designed her function. Whether you recognize it or not, it's there. We learn to do that with our wives. Then we learn to do it with our children. And it can't be a lie. Oh, this one's going to be a prodigy. No, he's a nose picker. Look at him. We, from the time they're born, start praying about their function, start praying about their name, start praying about what they'll be. And you have to cultivate it and bring it into existence. Jesus Christ expects us to love one another in this way. When I met Boj, I knew what the man was, not was, would become, was. It would just become more evident to the rest of us. When I met Mark Morrison, I knew. I'm not saying that we don't do a good job of convincing each other that it's not true at times. 
I've got some brothers that I've been telling, you are called to ministry and they're on a mission to, to make sure that that doesn't come to pass. I just believe that my God's bigger than their will. I knew the moment that I met Spencer, what he is called to do. And it's becoming evident to everyone now. Let's read Isaiah 46.10. Let's talk about our God for a second. Isaiah 46.10. I make known the end from the... I make known the end from the... From ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God has an end destination for every man, woman, and child in this room. And he didn't just say that he knows it. He said that he makes it known. He makes it known. Do you know why? So that we can agree on a purpose for Sidney Isabella's life. We can grab hands with her and say, sweetheart, I know this week was rough. But you know what? This is not your last week. You will stand up. You will fight. We will fight. And you will win. God's calling cannot be stopped if you do not stop. You cure disparity through grabbing somebody as equal to you. The apostle Peter wrote a letter and begins the letter with... To our brothers whose faith is as precious as ours. Can I be really honest about that? I'm not sure their faith was as precious as Peter's. Had they suffered like Peter? Had they been humiliated like Peter? Had they been raised up like Peter? Had their shadows healed? Probably not. But he knew in giving them equality, they would rise out of their disparity to it. This is what churches don't do well. They establish hierarchies. You elect a great man so that you do not have to become great, and he loves that you don't. That is not the kingdom. The kingdom is a family that will leave none behind, knows what our brothers are called to do, and fights for their calling. In fact, let's look at Romans 4. I hope so, brother. I uh, have not spent any time considering the way in which I would share this with you. I've only spent time considering the necessity of sharing it. Romans 4. I'd like to begin with you in verse 17. No, I'm going to do it in 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace and not, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Somebody say, Father? Father. Abraham. Abraham. Okay, that's not new to you. You've been hearing that song since you were knee high. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead 
and calls the things that are not as though they were. In other words, the faith of Abraham is dependent upon you looking at a disparity and going, you know what? I'm just going to call it equal. And God will make it equal. The greatest blessing in my life is not the times that someone else thought that I did better than they did. I've loved the Lord for a while. I've been pretty tenacious for a while. The greatest blessing in my life are when brothers that are surrounding me that were not thought to have the same aptitude or ability that God had given me outshine me. That is our crown. Do you know why? Because that is the proof that you are loving each other as Jesus loved you. When a disciple of a disciple of a disciple outshines the person who started the process, that is a crown. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. I want you to grab hold of something. Should we have the faith of Abraham? Yes. Is Abraham our father? Yes. The faith of Abraham, he did not see in his lifetime any of the promises come about. So what does that mean? The faith of Abraham is actually for what your brothers will receive, not you. The faith of Abraham is actually for what your sons will receive, not you. In fact, you only get it when they do. What if you had to have the faith of Abraham and not weaken in your faith and not waver and call the things that are not as though they were regarding the person sitting on your left or right? Because that's exactly what you're being called to do. I'm not talking about ignoring a standard. I'm not talking about accepting something that's less than righteous. I'm talking about grabbing hold of what God said he designed them for and clinging to that despite all of the other evidence that is around you. That's what it means to love each other as Jesus loves us. That's what it looks like to do that. Have you defined people in this body based? On their track record. Okay. You have defined people in this body based on their track record. What does that mean about you? Staring at the disparity between you and someone else always ignores the disparity between you and someone else. Let me share this with you. Let's go to 2 Timothy 4. Are y'all bored? 
You know what? One of the most beautiful things about being surrounded by an affirming, loving body like this is while I ask those questions because it's become just kind of a preaching habit, I don't really care. <laughs> I, I really don't. If you are bored while we're preaching, then something's wrong with you, not, not, <laughs> not with the rest of us. But um, I have better things in mind for you. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now imagine for a minute that Paul is talking to you, just like Jesus was talking to you earlier when we were reading about the 11. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct. Rebuke. And encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now, when we hear the word encourage, it's like, wow, Steph, that's a really nice sweater you have on today. That's not at all what this word means. The word encourage here that takes great patience and careful instruction is para, which means like to the side of. Para kaleo. Kaleo means that you call someone to the side of you. What this word is encouraging Timothy to do is to grab hold of people and call them to come to your side and to do that with great patience and very careful instruction. In other words, you have to create brotherhood that believes in the other person's calling. You have to create a brotherhood that will help your brother achieve their calling. What if you stop talking about what you're called to do at all? What if you stopped having selfish ambition thinly veiled... In Christian language. What if you were not the one announcing what you were called to do as your own witness and your own testimony? What if instead you only spoke about what your brothers were called to do? And that if somebody heard about the great things that you were called to do, it didn't come from a man who was announcing it through blowing his own trumpet. Of course, you'd have to have a culture of honor to accomplish something like that. You'd have to genuinely see into other people despite the data around and trust God to bring it about and believe that they could do the same for you. Of course, that would be a body that loves each other like the Lord loves us. It is the kind of body that we're building. It is what is happening. That's why we're having team unity meetings. It's why the Lord is taking us down this path. Now, I understand that there were some amazing meetings last night where you all talked about cultures of honor and a home meeting. That's beautiful. I love how the Lord does this. Did you hear Parakaleo was to call to the side of? John 14, 26, I won't read to you. Do you know that that's what the Holy Spirit is called? The paraclete? 
that the way that the Holy Spirit empowers you, the way the Holy Spirit advocates for you, the way that the Holy Spirit transforms you is to draw you to his side. It's one of his titles. It is the way that we are transformed. It is the way that we as a body rise to become more. There will never be an emphasis on you. Hey, listen to me very carefully. Stop advocating for your family. Stop advocating for yourself. Start advocating for everybody other than the ones that you have a personal interest in. You don't realize that it is selfish ambition. You get selfless ambition, and we will all rise together. That's what will happen. I want to go to 1 Thessalonians 2.11. And since I'm preaching, I'm going to do it. 1 Thessalonians 2.11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, parakaleo, calling them to the side, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. The calling was there before Paul urged them. The calling is there before you met them. What you are actually doing is you are recognizing, wow, that person was designed by God, and I want to help them reach the design of God. That's sacrificial, friends. That's loving, friends. That is the only way that we remain in the love of Jesus, friends. That's explicitly what John 15 teaches. The love of Jesus is you laying down your life for your brother to achieve his God-given call and design. We're to urge, encourage, call one another to our side that we would live lives worthy of what God has already destined you for. Man, that will change the way that we look at each other. That will change the way that we interact with each other. Can you honestly say that more days than not, you've woken up this week thinking about how to help your brothers achieve the calling on their life? I'm glad you didn't answer that out loud. Hey, Hebrews 10.25, could we look at that one quickly? Or not quickly? Hebrews 10.25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us parakaleo one another. Let's call each other to our sides. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Our calling is a corporate calling, and each of us have a piece of it, which means it's not possible for me to succeed without Matthew succeeding. And for me to think of my success without Matthew is in and of itself a satanic thought. I cannot be in the love of Christ if I'm thinking about how I can do good before I'm thinking about my brother's design and call. I sat down and wrote to the ministry team on a plane. I simply wrote to them the things that I missed about them. While I was gone, the absence of them physically 
left me feeling weak because we are without each other. What would you have achieved at all without the brothers that are around you? Man, that home meeting was so good. He spoke like an angel. Yes, but you didn't build the home meeting or the community that sprang out of or the teaching that you're giving. See, we need to think differently than we are thinking. We're going to defeat disparity by creating equals. If you are discipling someone and you have started to think of them as beneath you, you've already failed. If you are discipling someone and you really feel like you need to help them because they're just never going to succeed in this area, you've already failed. We will not recreate a hierarchy by judging people according to where they're at in this moment and defining them by it. You defeat the disparity between you and a brother by crediting them with equality before your natural senses can perceive it. It must be obtained in the spirit. The most negligent thing that I have ever seen done in ministry is so commonplace that it will make you vomit. It is when you have people that you are pastoring and you do not know what they're supposed to become. How can you pastor someone like that? How can you help them at all like that? And you're just using them so that you feel good about your position. What should your prayer life look like? You should be praying that you know what your brothers are called to accomplish. Why did he send them out in pairs of two? Why did they practice government in teams of two and three? So that they could fight for each other's calling, which is the calling. I think we probably ought to do Romans 12. This has been being kicked around. Pastor Wade opened the service with it. I understand the esteemed gentleman taught on it last night, so I'm not going to teach on it. I just want to point to something. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's almost exactly what John 15 says. Honor one another above yourselves. ESV says outdo one another in honor. You already know that that word is time. It is when someone has a fixed value in your eyes. A value that is based on their redemption. A value that is based on their design. What does it mean for me to honor Assad? Does it mean that when Assad comes in the room, I'm like, Archbishop Assad! No, not at all. It means that in any circumstance, at any time, what is first and foremost in my mind is this man was designed by God to be a lion that shares the word of God. And in every interaction, no matter what it means for me, that is the view of him that I have. Honor one another above yourselves. You can't do that if you're ambitious for what you will achieve. The only way you'll achieve anything is by honoring others above yourself. Why are there churches all over the world that collapse somewhere between 15 and 20 years? 
because they were not really honoring others above themselves. They were slowly lifting themselves up and being deceived while they did it. That is the single pastor model. And the single pastor model has always been disguised by, no, 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 there's another pastor. He's just not as good as me. There's another pastor, but my name is on the sign. So, okay, well, it's a good thing we're not like that. When you share in a meeting, do you need your spouse to know that what the other person just shared really came from you? When something good happens, do you need the people that you love, that you trust, to understand that the source of that good thing was not your brother who shared it. It was you who shared it with him. See, we're going to get rid of this stuff, and this is not a corrective message. What I'm trying to help you do is see that you learn that our strength is for our brother on Thursday night. Well, your faith is for your brother, too. I'm going to close in Ezekiel 37. I honestly have lost track how long this is, but I'm just going to share what is on my mind. This is the origin of prophetic speech in this church. It comes from Ezekiel 37. What we're hoping to do is create a culture of honoring God's design in our brother, not overlooking sin, not turning a blind eye to it and calling it mercy, simply elevating God's calling and design above what you see in this moment. In other words, operating in faith towards our brother. If we will do that, something amazing is going to happen, and we are going to do it because it's up to us. Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. Are you beginning to get the impression that everything that the man saw looked like it was not very encouraging? Bones. Bones everywhere. Bones, bones, bones. Dry bones. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I love the prophet's honesty. I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Anybody want to hear the interpretation of that? I don't think so, Lord. I don't want to disagree with you, but no. It's pretty well dry bones everywhere. This situation looks grim. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, wait a minute. God just asked him if he had the faith for these bones to live, and he just said, <laughs> only you would know that. And now God is telling him to prophesy to them. Oh, it's almost like he can worship the Lord and be doubting. But God tell him how he must say, how he must think, how he must speak to the situation. I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, 
hear the word of the Lord. Not Ezekiel's word. Not Ezekiel's opinion. What God has told Ezekiel to say. And Ezekiel has no idea if it's going to work. That's a part of worshiping the Lord while you're doubting. But he does know how to remain in the love of the Lord by being obedient to what was said. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you. Who? The Lord. The Lord is the I in this. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skins. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I want you to get this. There's not one of you that worships so perfectly that you are not also a doubter. There is not one of you that when compared to Christ does not have disparity between you and him. And yet he grabs you by the hand and says, I chose you. He breathes into you. His word is bringing you to life. And he expects you to do the same thing to the people that are around you. That's what it means to remain in his love. He said, Lord, I just, I don't know whether this is going to work with Judah. He doesn't care whether you know it will work or not. He expects you to say to Judah and act to Judah exactly what he says. He will cause your brother to come to life. He will raise them up. He will cure the disparity, but you have to see them as an equal. Oh, it's so easy to rank ourselves. Of course, you don't like being ranked yourself. Your strength is for your brother. We learned that from Justin Treister and Pastor Parsons. Your faith is for your brother. I hope you heard me say that today. Now I want to tell you that if you really engage with John 15, your very life is for your brother. And if it's not, then it still belongs to you. They closed a service the other night in Judges 16 and verse 30. Can we put that on the screen? Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all of his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Samson did more in his death than in his life. But if you engage with Matthew 16, 24, aren't we called to die daily? Aren't we called to carry our cross daily? Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. It sounds to me very much like the most practical application of this verse is placing your brother's calling before your own. Honoring your brother's God-given design more than you would honor your own. 
You'll accomplish more in dying like that than you could ever accomplish through trying to live. I believe it's what the Lord is calling us to. I believe it's what we have to do. And ultimately, I believe that it's what Luke 640 teaches us. Every student, when fully trained, will be like their master. We are not going to degenerate into hierarchies of D Christians, C Christians, B Christians, and A Christians. We're going for success for every person in this room, and we will die to make sure that they succeed. That means that we have to die for them to succeed. I want you to consider as we are beginning to pray the areas in which you've defined people and it's not based on how God designed them. It's not based on what you know the Lord has called them to do. It's simply based on how you see them so that we can circumcise that out of here. We can kill it. I want you to also turn the mirror of the God, the mirror of the word of God upon your own heart. While saying it's all for Jesus, have you become me focused? I have to get here. I am called to this. Um, uh, I just don't know how the calling's going to come about, but um, I am called to this. You aren't called to anything without your brothers. Except idolatry. No, 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 no. I know we need to do it in a team. But in your heart, is it you-centered? They get to participate with you instead of you participating with them. See, to love like Jesus did, to remain in his love, it requires that we both honor their design and we place their function above our own. This is what the faith of Abraham is. Would you stand to your feet? Everything that our ministry is is based on the principle that I just shared with you. We didn't understand it fully when we began. Our revelation has been growing in it. But there would not be a church for you to stand in if we did not see brothers ignore the disparity between us, credit them with equality, until they became that and more. That is what has built this ministry and built the One Association. So if you like what we are, if you think you are what we are, and you want to go replicate it, well, you better start practicing that right here, right now. It's only taken us 20 years to come anywhere close to starting to get this right. You can do it much faster by evaluating your own soil of your heart right today and evaluating the call of God on somebody else's life as worthwhile. He died for them every bit as much as He ever died for you. Father, we're asking here and now that You would help us see rightly 
Lord, that the areas of idolatry in our hearts would be dealt with by your spirit of holiness. Not to punish us, Lord, but to lift us out of blindness and dumbness. Lord, that as the plank is removed from our eye, we would begin to evaluate our brothers in the way that you see them. Lord, so that we might glorify your name and your design in them. Lord, teach us to love others in the way that you do. Help us here by your spirit. We submit ourselves to you.